This morning's scripture reading is from Revelation 16, 8 through 21. Revelation chapter 16, verses 8 through 21. As I read, feel free to follow along in your Bible or on the screens. Hear from God's word. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they were demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty." Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they, and they cursed God for the plague of hail, because the plague was so severe. This is God's word. At this time, children ages three through kindergarten are dismissed to the little landing. Thank you, Andrew. Good morning, faith family at the landing. What a privilege to worship the Lord together now over the word. Would you pray with me one more time as I ask for his help? Open to us, Lord, your word as Andrew just prayed over us and for us. Now come and speak to us through this sober yet joy-supplying passage, hope-supplying passage. Thanks for telling us what you're going to do in advance so that we can be ready and applaud you, praise you, and glorify you for it as we see events leading to it and as we behold it unfolding. Thank you so much for the way you will use this passage to prepare us and equip us now, but how you might even draw out of darkness into light some who've never known you before through this passage. Help us to see Christ here. Help us not to miss all that you have for us. I come weak and broken, and I ask that because there's so much glorious truth in this passage and in all the Word of God, you would preach your Word better to your people than I can. Preach to them a better sermon than the one that they'll hear from me. Improve and correct, strengthen and sharpen everything that we now think and see and conclude from your word so that your people are ready to go out in bold, fearless witness 
conquering by their hope in you in the trials that they face today and in the ones to come, no matter how severe. Your name is at stake, Lord. Get glory for yourself in us, I pray. In Jesus' holy name, I ask it. Amen. The voice of Christ to the landing this morning is this. Verse 15 of chapter 16. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one at the landing who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Christ comes when none of us knows. His timing will be unexpected. So stay awake, landing. Stay awake, brothers and sisters in Christ. Stay awake spiritually. Keep your eyes open to all that God is doing in the world. The devil is active, but don't fear him. He's only doing what God permits. Don't fear evil, the world's system, everything that that gathers itself and plots against God and God's people. Don't fear that. Fear ultimately God, for he is the one at work to cause all of his promises to come to pass, to cause his son to be glorified by all he has created, and to cause his church, his bride, to be gathered, not one missing, into his presence for eternal joy. So stay awake. That's exactly what Christ said through the Spirit, through John to the churches that John had this vision, the book of Revelation, to deliver to. And yet we represent the seven churches ourselves. So his word to them is his word to us. Stay awake. Stay awake spiritually. Keep your clean garments of holiness on. That's the charge Christ gives to us out of verse 15. It's exactly what he said to the church at Sardis in Revelation 3. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So stay awake. Keep your garments on, the Spirit says to us, and the Spirit says to Sardis. What does keep your garments on mean? The Spirit elaborates in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So your white garments are the righteousness Christ purchased for you that you wear and defines your identity in him. That's what your garment's on. That's what you're to keep on. It's, it's your identity, who you are in Christ. That's the white garments you are to keep on. They're to protect us and to bring glory to the Lord and to ready us to be in his presence. It's like our hazmat suit against the sins of the world. It's like Kevlar wrapped around us. It's like uh, all the protective things we would need, our own personal biosphere that we walk through this world wearing, defining who we are, chosen, beloved, names written in the Lamb's book of life, and protected right to the very end. No mark of the beast can touch us. We'll not receive it. We will stand against it because in the righteousness of Christ that we wear, we're united with him. So how then do we live today? What is this passage Andrew just read supposed to create in us? What's it supposed to do for us? I don't think the command... That, that we're going to look at to conquer is, is by itself 
the easiest thing to achieve. Now, you, you know, I've said this before in this series, but I'll remind you again, the command to conquer shows up at least seven specific times in the book of Revelation. Seven times the book of Revelation says, conquer or, or overcome, some translations might say, seven times. And the verb related to it, nikao, to conquer or overcome, is used many more times. It's a major theme in the book of Revelation. The aim is to say, go out and don't let your sin, the sins of others, or the world system, or the devil himself, stop you from loving Jesus. So you should just ask yourself, what in the world in my life is hindering me from loving Jesus right now? Are there friends? Are there sins? Are there patterns of temptation? Are there ideas? Are there confusions? Are there habits? Are there things in my past? Are there relationships or or things in my future? Are there dreams and hopes? What's in my life that causes me to go cold in my love for Jesus? When the son of lawlessness appears, most men's love will grow cold. Don't let it happen to one person in this room, Lord. Not one person in this room, don't let their love grow cold. But he who, is in, who endures to the end will be saved. So I pressed through the Bible, and I pressed through Revelation, and I pressed through many passages in the Bible. How does my conquering happen? How do I get that confidence and knowledge that I'm on my sure and certain path toward conquering when the trials and difficulties and oppositions grow fierce. I came across 1 John. John, the same writer, his epistle, the first one, chapter 3. Listen and see if you can see where conquering comes from in this paragraph. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. There's our identity, children of God. The reason why the world does not know us is that they did not know Him. Beloved, No exaggeration in the Bible when it uses that term of address to us. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. This is an end times passage. But we know that when he appears, now we're talking exactly the same themes as Revelation. But we know when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So when I look at Jesus face to face, when you look at Jesus face to face, you know what you will become and what you will become will be a a new creature fully completed in Christ because you'll see him. Seeing him will cause you to become like him. So then John ends by saying, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see how that works? You think about Jesus, you're looking at Jesus, you're you're singing to Jesus, you're studying the Bible to learn more about Jesus, and you get this beautiful picture of what Christ is like, and you begin to hope in that Christ, that he's real and true, not just for others, but for you, and that has the effect of purifying you. It makes your garments white and pure. Now you're ready. Do you see how conquering happens? Conquering happens by looking to Christ, and as I look to him, he works his purity in me, and now I am ready, I am defended, I am protected, I am fully covered in the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness I could never achieve on my own, the righteousness I dare not even try to achieve on my own. 
This conquering is exactly what Noah did in the days of the ark and the flood. It's exactly what Moses did crossing the Red Sea with the people of Israel out of Egypt. It's exactly what Daniel in the angel's den did to avoid being eaten by lions. It's exactly what the early church did in the book of Acts and Christian followers for the last 2,000 years have done around the world. They conquer by looking to Christ that creates hope, hope purifies, and now they are ready to stand against all the temptation and lies of not only the devil, but their own lying and tempting heart, the lies and temptations of those around them and of this world system. Seven times we're told to conquer. Seven times we're told that this conquering will be achieved in us as we look to Christ and as he creates in us the kind of holiness without which no one will see the Lord, says the writer of Hebrews. We know that what's in Revelation 16, we looked at in be- just as a beginning last week, now we look at more fully, is this final battle. This is it. This is the climax of the world. Oh, there's more to the book of Revelation, but it only gives more and fuller definition of what we're looking at here today in Revelation 16. We know that because we've already been told back in chapter 10 between the sixth and seven trumpets that there would be no more delay. This was God bringing his final judgment on this world in this time. We also know from Revelation 15:1 what couldn't be more plain. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels and seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. This is the climax of this age. This is the end of this world. We also know from right here in our own passage, and we'll look at it in a moment, a voice from heaven opens up and says, it is done. It is done. This is the very conclusion of this age. Everything that is moving forward, everything spiritual that's happening in your life, everything spiritual that's happening in governments, everything that's spiritual happening in the world and that impacts all manner of wars and rumors of wars and and weather patterns and all their changes, everything that's happening inside the hearts of of Congress and, and laws and policies and men and women, everything that's happening inside individual homes and relationships and inside your own mind right now. All this is moving toward this climax depicted here plainly for us in Revelation 16, the very end of the world, where God will bring all his enemies to himself and have a just and just, just and right judgment upon them. How do we conquer? We conquer because we're united with Christ, looking to him, Hope rising in us and that hope purifying us. Remember, or, or I shouldn't say remember, we haven't gotten there yet. Get, let me give you a foretaste of what we'll enjoy in just a few weeks. Revelation 17, 14. They, all the kings of the earth, will make war on the Lamb. And the Lamb will conquer them. Same verb, same command that's given to us, but now the Lamb is doing it. And the Lamb will conquer them. Why? For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. Those with him are called chosen and faithful. We conquer all the enemies of God and all our enemies because we're called chosen and faithful with the Lamb who conquers on our behalf. He does the three-point shot from way outside the three-point circle, I think it's called. And he wins the championship, but because we're on his team, we all get the championship ring as well. 
He hits the home run, and the World Series is won by him. He's the hero, but we're on his team, and therefore we win with him. He won the Medal of Honor, yet we're his family and are accorded the honor that Medal of Honor recipients deserve. We are united with him. He conquers all those who oppose him, therefore we conquer in him. Do you sometimes feel like your life is not conquering? You sometimes feel beat up and attacked? Was it true last night? Was it true yesterday? Was it true this last week? Do you fear it will be true this coming week? I feel beat up. I feel weary. I feel cast down. I feel tempted to anxiety or despair or depression. I feel overwhelmed by the, the financial burdens or the relationship struggles or the work struggles or the, the, the malaise that seems to settle over this country and so many other countries. I, I don't want to know the news, and yet I can't bear going without some awareness of the news. And yet the more I hear of it, the more terrible life seems to become. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's walk through these three paragraphs that remain in chapter 16 that Andrew just read. I not only want to show you how hope arises out of these three paragraphs, the kind of hope that, that builds your confidence in God and enables you to conquer with him, but this creates the hope that it speaks of. It doesn't just tell you about certain future events. I take this to be the future final end of the world, as I've just shown. But it creates the kind of people who are ready to say with sobriety and yet with boldness, we will step into this and be obedient. We will conquer with the conquering lamb. We will not shrink back. We will not compromise. We will not take on all the ideas of the world that are trying right now to bring me, the elders, the deacons, and this church down. There are spiritual beings that would love this church to fail. There are spiritual beings that would love your Christian life to fail. And the Christian lives of believers all through this whole community, city, region, state, nation, and globe. We are in a battle. Christ will conquer and we who are in him will conquer with him. In verses 8 through 11... I want you to see we conquer by our hope in God who offers repentance to the ungodly, even to the very end. This is a theme we pick up from last time. We conquer by our hope in a God who offers repentance to the ungodly, even to the very end. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, verse 8 says, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. This is God pouring out a bowl on the sun, removing the thermostat, and now the sun begins to blaze with heat beyond what it's ever blazed with before. And this is the fire that so often is spoken of in the scriptures that comes down upon the earth at the very end. This makes global warming look like an evening bath. But it also tells us what should we be hearing from the voice of God in the awareness that there's a heat problem around the world. Is there anything we should be repenting of, Lord? Is there anything that we could repent of on behalf of the human condition? 
the way Daniel repented on behalf of the Israelite people because they had displeased you. Nature reveals your wrath and your glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. That is the government structure around the world that's established to say, let's gather resources, let's gather ideas, let's gather technology, let's gather unity against the living God and everybody who represents him. That's what the beast is. This bowl is poured out on the throne or the kingdom of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. The heat of the sun, the darkness here reminds us exactly like the previous plagues and the future ones have done that this is very, very much like a fulfillment of exactly what God did over Egypt when Moses and the people of Israel were enslaved there. The salvation that God is going to achieve in the very end of the world is very similar and pointed forward to by the salvation he achieved back in Egypt for his beloved Israelite people. All wrath in this age, wrath God is permitting now, wrath God will permit in the future, and wrath God allows to bring to an end this age, all wrath in this age prior to hell, prior to the judgment and hell thereafter, all wrath in this age is evangelistic. It's meant to create repentance in human beings. It's meant to cause them to say, I no longer want to wear the mark of the beast. I no longer want to be part of this world system. I want to glorify God. I repent of that behavior and I take on the new behavior of the deeds of the living God whose name I now praise. Entire economic systems will collapse. We saw that already with all the water turning to blood and with boils and sores all over everyone's skin. Now it's dark everywhere and yet the sun is blazing. Can you imagine? The sun blazing with scorching heat over the entire earth and yet it's dark everywhere. Boggles the imagination. In bowls four and five, we see the beast and his kingdom being destroyed. He... he has marks on the people and that allows them to buy and sell, but you can't even see people anymore. And their boils are making the marks invisible and the, and the sky is dark and no one can see each other and, and everything is, all, all the liquid, all the water is now blood so everyone is dying of thirst and they still refuse to repent though God would permit them to do so if they would. They would still refuse to give him glory yet God would permit if they would. Proverbs 19, verse 3 says, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. When a man's folly, his own sin, brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. This is just the foolish, darkened heart of humanity on display. I've caused all the problems in my life. And I'm angry at you, God. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever known anyone to feel that way? But Proverbs 10, 28 says, The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectations of the wicked will perish. The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. Before we're done today, I want you to see in this sobering passage, talking about the the great suffering and loss that God will level against those who oppose him, you will find even joy. I promise you, it's here. Our hope in God is real, and that hope causes us to be prepared to conquer with him. 
Because God is not vengeful, petty, capricious, or vindictive. God is patient and kind and willing for all sinners to repent, even at the last hour. Be stunned by the mercy and calm, quiet spirit of God while he is causing these bowls to be unfolded on the world he created. He means for each of these horrible difficulties, darkness everywhere, heat scorching the whole earth, no one's drinking any water for there's no water left, boils all over their arms, the entire economic world is in collapse, and God says, I'm doing this that you would repent and give me glory. Instead, what do they do? They gnaw their tongues and they gnash their teeth. It's undeniable, isn't it? Self-harm is the inevitable outcome of a person who relentlessly and persistently runs away from God into rebellion. This God who is patient to the very end and not vengeful or vindictive gives us hope. It's the God we come to with our sin and even though we may have sinned in a repeated fashion in a, in a pattern that we feel ashamed of even to confess before him, he receives us and he lavishes on us grace and mercy. He receives our repentance. Even when we feel like we need to repent of our repentance, he receives our broken repentance. Praise his name. I want you to see second the hope that comes from verses 12 through 16. This is, this is mind-stretching but glorious. Dive into this with me. Bowl number six dries up the Euphrates River to prepare for kings from the east to come make war on God's people. It's obviously not talking about the actual Euphrates River because God's people are no longer a small enclave on the, at the west of it and the enemies of God's people are no longer just those who live to the east of it. It's a symbol, like everything else in Revelation, of much bigger things. In fact, we are already told that it's kings from around the world that are going to come and fight against God. We're already told that the beast false kingdom is global. We're already told that this is a massive global conflagration and war that's to happen. This is not merely a tribal or, or defined location. That's way, way too small. In fact, the drying up of the Euphrates River would trigger in the biblically careful reader memories of how God dried up the Euphrates to prepare evil kings to come against Israel and yet for him to fight on behalf of Israel and destroy those evil kings. That's what's about to happen. Look at verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon... And out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. So here's the beast and the dragon and the false prophet in their dying kingdom. And they're, they're vomiting out demonic spirits who are like frogs. It makes you think again. This is just like Moses and the people of Israel getting protected during the plagues in Egypt. But these frogs are demonic spirits croaking lies, and doing signs and wonders, according to verse 14, that are meant to deceive the kings of the world to come and fight against God and his people. Who could ever make this stuff up? 
demons like croaking frogs, croaking lies, so that the kings of all the world gather together and they come allured by true signs and wonders performing false ideas, lies, to get these kings to come and say, we in all our power, we in all our artificial intelligence, we in all our computing ability and firepower and destructive explosive ability, we in all our satellite ability, we in all our spaceship ability, we in all of our capacities are going to combine our forces together and we are going to rise up and we are going to kill God. And God says, hold up. Let me dry the river up so you can get in. See, what's happening here isn't just the rebellion of the demonic and the beast and the, the false prophet and the dragon combining together and all the evil kings of the, of the world. That's on the surface of it, but notice what's already happened. While it's dark, while everybody is scorched by the sun, while no one's had any water, and while their skin is covered with boils, they're plotting a massive army overtake of God and his people, and they're going to come against God, and they're listening to the signs and wonders and the miracles that are being done for false purposes by these three frogs. And they're saying, yeah, that's what we should do. Let's kill God. This is the climax of the world. Joel 2 said there would be a great and terrible day of the Lord. The Old Testament and New Testament promises that this day will come. Jesus said, therefore, therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That's why it's perfectly suitable and should not have parentheses around it. Verse 15. If your, if your translation, as mine does, has parentheses around it, it's adding something in that the Bible doesn't have. It shouldn't be there. It's not a parentheses. It's in the perfect flow of thought. Behold, Christ the risen lamb, the one who already died and it didn't work. Death didn't take with him. He's risen and reigning. He's the one who says, behold, I am coming like a thief. You won't know when it is. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. It's exactly what he said back in Matthew 24. Don't be taken in by the lies of those who mock Noah during the day of him building an ark when the sun was shining. Don't be taken in by the lies of the devil. Don't be taken in by the lies of those who are in league of the devil. And almost everybody you know is in this beast kingdom. It is the majority opinion. The beast kingdom gathers people so that they will buy and sell and have the mark of the beast. That's the vast majority of people. It's the rare and unique and standing against the tide individual who has faith in Jesus Christ. And that's becoming even more unique around the world and in this country. Don't listen to them. Don't follow the beast in his kingdom. Don't follow the liars who croak their lies. They're everywhere. They're not just in obvious dark places. There are lies being croaked in Christian cloak. 
Weigh carefully everything you hear me say. Don't trust that I said it. See it in your Bible. Look at what happens in verse 16. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon, Mount of Meeting. Mount of Meeting, that's what Armageddon means. I don't think it's a specific place. I think it's an event. I think it's meant to bring to mind exactly what Zechariah 12 prophesied in his apocalyptic prophecy. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, prophesying of Christ, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad-Ramon in the place of Megiddo. I think they would have said, okay, God's coming back for the final climactic battle against evil, and he's going to meet them on the Mount of Meeting, and it's going to be just like Megiddo. They're going to look upon the Christ whom they have pierced, and only those who love him are going to mourn for him. They are going to say, that's what we want to do again to him. We want to destroy Christ, the Lamb of God, who is the cause of all our pain, sorrow, and suffering. No matter where location the battle occurs, the reality is God calls it the great day of the Almighty, of the Lord Almighty, verse 14. That term in the original is, is exactly what we saw back in chapter 11, 7, where it's the war. It's the war. And it shows up again in the future, we'll see in chapter 19, verse 19. It is the war to end all of time and all of this age. Listen to how Christ himself is going to come and wage that war. As we anticipate his coming, Revelation 19, 17 through 21, here's the description of Christ and how he will win this battle. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered, same verb, same subject, to make war, same term, against him, Christ, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Christ wins. Christ wins the battle. God dried up the Euphrates, as it were, to say, come, bring your rebellion. Bring your your unity. Bring your plans and your efforts to destroy me and my son, and you will find, in fact, that you will be destroyed. Christ claims that he is the supreme God and King of kings and Lord of lords. No one can fight against Christ and win. He comes now in patience and in kindness, covering and dying for our sins. He comes then as a mighty warrior on a horse with a fierce champion mission to destroy and give to the birds all the flesh of his enemies. We hope in him. We hope in him because he is the one who's ordering all of this. He's the one whose plan is unfolding. He's the one who drives the Euphrates and says, Come, let the croaks, 
the, the frogs croak and let the kings come and let them assemble against me. I will meet them. It will be a mount of Megiddo and we will have a battle on the very mount where they killed me, my son, the lamb, and now they will come against me and they will find that the lamb will destroy them. That's the beauty, the order, the sobriety, the worship-creating power of the end of the age. Finally, in verses 17 through 21, we conquer by this hope in God who remembers his just promises. God remembers his just promises. I get that from verses 17 through 21. It's the seventh bowl. And like all the other sevens, we've seen that this is attended by a theophany of God's presence for judgment. It's a storm. There's thunder. There's lightning. There's earthquake. And there's earthquakes here greater than any earthquake they've ever known. And then there's the smoke of his glory. It's exactly the kind of thing we saw in Mount Sinai when the people of Israel came out of Egypt. It's exactly what the other seventh seals and the seventh trumpet and now the seventh bowl signify. It is, in fact, worse than our worst conceivable and wildest, most horrific nightmare because it's all the earth and all the people are full of, full of boils and in darkness and scorched with heat and thirsty for having drunk no water. And nothing works anymore in the world, and yet they still refuse to repent. So they're gnawing their tongues and gnashing their teeth, and they're coming before God, and they're saying, God, put them up. We're going to kill you. And in their rebellion, they are destroyed. John talks about the great city. I take that to be Babylon, because chapters 17, 18, and 19 are all about the great city Babylon. And how the great city Babylon comes apart into three parts. Its very core is destroyed. Look at verse 19. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. This isn't just Rome in John's day. It isn't just Washington in our day. It isn't just Constantinople or Beijing or any of the other great cities of the world. This is all the cities of the nations falling. All the place where people run for their protection and their power and their, their voting blocks and all their authority to try to get something done, all of that falls. And then verse 19 gives the core of this paragraph, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. It's the answer to what David had prayed in Psalm 74. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. It's David's cry and our cry, Lord, we're your church. We love you. We sing to you. We worship you. We believe in you. Please don't forget us. Remember us. Bring your promises to pass against all who stand in opposition to you and to we who love and follow you. God says, I will remember. The very final judgment of the world is God remembering how he is going to make Babylon, the entire world system, the kingdom of the beast, as it were, is Babylon, to drink of the fury of his wrath. Here's the end of the world. If God is holy, and he is, if God is sinless and incapable of evil, and he is, if God creates and owns and rules over all creation, and he does, if he owns even human beings and all that they are and do, and all time and all things in heaven and on earth, all things worth any value, all things that exist, if he owns and rules over it all, then here is the perfect 
sevenfold outpouring of his wrath upon the rebellious of the earth. God remembering his fury against Babylon. We hope in him because of that. We hope in him because of that. He is a just God who takes the just wrath against sinners and he remembers it against Babylon. But in our case, who trust in him, glory of glories, he takes the same wrath against our sin, which we rightly deserve, and he remembers it not against us, but it remembers it against Christ. Why do I think that's in view? Why do I apply it that way to our hearts? Why do I see us having hope created in our hearts and conquering because of that hope? Look down with me to verse 7. Verse 17, rather. This glorious verse includes a wonderful statement from heaven, from the temple of heaven. That is the voice of Christ himself. And after the seventh and most severe bowl has been poured out, it says, it is done. Soak this up. This is glorious. All the wrath against sinners like you and me who trust in Christ is absorbed in one afternoon upon the Son of God till at the very end he says, it is finished. And there's no more wrath against me in the heart of God for the sins I have committed past, present, and future. Praise his name. And here Christ speaks out from the temple of heaven when God's final bowl of wrath is poured out on Babylon and on the beast and its kingdom and all the rebellious ones against God. And he says, it is done. God's name has been vindicated. His glory clearly shown, his righteousness on display, his name worth worshiping. The voice of the Lamb says the very same thing at the end of the pouring out of the wrath of God. Surely the early church, surely the recipients of the first seven letters, surely faithful, careful Christians will say, oh, I love when Jesus says it is finished. For all the realities of the world are sewn up in that short, sweet, powerful little phrase when our Lord Jesus Christ utters it. Every fear, every concern, every anxiety, every horror, every enemy, every tear, every sorrow captured in those two phrases. It is finished. It is done. Revelation 12, you remember, says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. I heard from a woman through a video through persecution.org where she talked about how she was utterly persecuted because she was interested in reading the Bible. And she was beaten and she was mistreated by her husband and by men in Afghanistan, Kabul, Afghanistan. And she escaped and she was given... uh, a place to live in California, and she found that there were many displaced Afghanistani women in California, and so she got to know them, and they invited her to church, and she got saved. There's a whole renewal of of the gospel happening in California among Afghanistani refugees. 
And now she's going back to Afghanistan and she goes back not to the city of Kabul or to the other high concentration locations, but she goes back to the mountainous regions. When she goes back with her team and others with her now go back to Afghanistan, they don't go back to the cities. They fly in and they travel in, but then they move out into the mountains. Why? Because the Taliban who run the cities are very, very lazy and they don't like moving up into the mountains. And so the people discovered that and they want to get away from Taliban uh, Muslim persecution, so they go up into the crags and mountain peaks and caves, and they're found there by this woman and others who work with her team, and they share the gospel with these people, and they receive the gospel. So in the mountains of Afghanistan, people are getting saved. Hardly anyone will tell you that. I promised you joy. I promised you joy. Look again to what the word our Lord Jesus uses as he ends this word in verse 15, the instruction he gives to keep us faithful, to cause us to conquer and be hopeful in God even though trials in this life and yet to come become severe. Behold, I am coming like a thief, blessed. The third blessed out of seven in the book of Revelation. There's always seven, right? This is the third one. Happy. Shielded in me, protected in me, Colossians 3.3, I'm hid with Christ in God. I'm protected, I'm shielded. I have my, my identity on. I'm with Christ and therefore, even in the most horrible outpourings of difficulty, then and now, I'm blessed. He's causing me to stay awake and keep my garments on. He's working this holiness in me. He's keeping me spiritually awake. He's keeping me faithful to him. I'm conquering because he's conquering. The lamb conquered and I conquer in him. Blessed, happy, joyful. So shocking is this blessed, joyful word that some interpreters feel the need to insert parentheses around it. Don't put the parentheses in. This is how the Lord Jesus talks to his people. He gives them joy in the midst of sorrow. Let's pray. So improve, Lord, everything that we've said just now from Revelation 16 to make it useful to every person in this room, every person in the hearing of my voice. Improve it so that they can say, I'm among the blessed ones. I'm among the happy ones who has my garments on and I'm awake before the living Christ. Cause me to conquer with you, Lord. I would conquer with you. Thank you for the promises of revelation. Thank you for the clarity and beauty and the breadth of it. Thank you for the mystery and the, the higher than we can understand dimensions of it. Thank you so much for the way it continually points us back to the cross and the resurrection. Thank you for how it points to every other phrase of scripture and elucidates all the Bible in one grand unified whole. Thank you for the wonder that it puts within the human heart to say, oh, that this Christ would be mine and that I might be his. Lord, if there's someone who has not yet known the joy, the blessedness of walking with Christ, despising the shame of all suffering, then would you draw them to yourself right now? Draw them to yourself that, that in such a way they say, I want to be known as Christ's. I would have the removal and erasure by the miracle of the new birth, any 
marks of the beast that might remain on my skin. I want to be marked by faithfulness to Jesus Christ. I want to be clothed in his righteousness and awake for his coming. Lord, I pray that for all believers in this room, we would revel in how much you love us, thrill at how perfectly you've laid out the future, overjoy ourselves in the fact that you call us blessed because you're coming soon. We will lift our eyes. We will look and watch for you. We are ready, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Let your will be done on this earth. Do it quickly. We are ready. In your great name we pray these things. And now sing. Amen. Would you stand?